I'm C.J. Layton, coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studios in Lake Wales, Florida, home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowlers Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show was regularly scheduled at the same time each week. The late Kegel owner, the great John Davis, told Len Nicholson to start this program because, quote, people need to know what you know, end quote. This PBA and bowling writer Hall of Famer has now recorded over 1,200 shows and has featured over 425 guests since 2002, 20 years plus of bowling knowledge, story sharing, and true expertise. Phantom, we need to know what you know. So Phantom fans, here's your host, Len Nicholson, The Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ, and a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Kegel Company, the number one lane maintenance company in the world. For all of your lane maintenance needs, including 24-hour technical support, you can always rely on the Kegel Company. So go to kegel.net. Well, Phantom fans, we started doing these podcasts back in 2002 at the request of the late John Davis. And John loved bowling, and he wanted bowlers to have as much knowledge and information as possible. Well, as you probably know, we do poll our listeners twice a year, and they love the knowledge and the two things that we try to pass on, and that's the knowledge and information. They also love the tips that the pros offer, along with tour stories. And we tell those now and then, and with over 1,200 shows, some of our shows are bittersweet. And that includes this one. Well, our guest this week is, without a question about it, the PBA historian, and he's a PBA and USBC Hall of Famer. And his knowledge and storytelling are second to none. And so this week, he's going to be telling us a few happy stories about a good friend who recently passed away. So, Larry Lickstein, thanks for being with us. I know you were very close to Dave Davis. So, where do you want to start, my friend? Well, thank you so much, Len. It's always great uh, to be on uh, your show. And God bless John Davis uh, for uh, giving you the opportunity. And, And you ran with it for the last 20 years. And for me, it's always an honor. And you know, you have so many great guests that I don't get on a lot, but when I do, it's 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 a privilege. So I want to thank you. As far as my life with Dave Davis goes, uh, my life with Dave Davis actually started uh, in 1965 when I watched him win the national championship. It was a very unique event. Uh, they bowled three games for the title on television back then. And, you know, formats have changed over the years. And I was always interested and watching the lefties uh, growing up as a kid at Bradley Bowl and Windsor Locks. So if Bill Allen would make a telecast or Roy Lown or Jerry McCoy, uh, I would always really get excited knowing that I had a chance to watch the greatest left-handers in the world on ABC Sports with Chris Schenkel and Billy Wailu. And I watched Dave Davis win 
the national championship in 65 against Jerry McCoy. It was a very unique show. During the opening of the show, Burton and Shankle discussed the fact that Jerry McCoy took a cab to uh, the Detroit Convention Center or one of the big facilities in Detroit where the national championship telecast was being held. And the cab driver slammed his left thumb as he was closing the door. And McCoy was left-handed. His thumb was bleeding profusely. He went in and he told Harry Golden he didn't think he could bowl Dave Davis for the title. And he did. They bandaged him up. They iced him up. Davis beat him about 680 to 501 or 502. McCoy couldn't even hold the ball. Well, McCoy was the 64 PBA Rookie of the Year. He was the first Rookie of the Year. So now Dave Davis beats him to become the first left-hander to win a major. And then in 1967, Davis wins the national championship again to become the first left-hander to win two majors. And then in 67, he's the leading candidate for bowler of the year going into the fall tour. And the fall tour goes to Plainville, Connecticut, for the Plainville JCs open. And I had won a pro-am spot for leading qualifying in Aniba in August at Auburn Tenpin. So I go in the bowl of pro-am and lo and behold, my pro-am partner is Dave Davis for three games. Back then the pros didn't move. So I'm nervous as hell. I've watched him win two championships on television. Everybody knows he's the leading candidate for bowler of the year. I bowl three games with him. He beats me. I'll never forget 606 to 560. And I left and I was mad. I was furious. But on the way out, there was a spot open in the event. A friend of mine that was a businessman in, in the south end of Hartford asked me if I wanted to bowl the event, that there was a spot open. He said he'd back me, and he'd come up with the $100 to back me. And I said, yeah. So we went into Harry Golden's office, and Harry Golden asked me how old I was. I told him I graduated high school in June, and I lived with my mother in Hartford, and he gave me a parental uh, uh, consent form. And he says, bring this back to your mother, sign it, and uh, I want you to call me at this number uh, when she signed it, and then I want you to come back tomorrow morning uh, uh, with a clean shirt with your name on the back, clean shoes, clean shaven, and have a pre-tournament meeting, and we'll let you bowl. Have you averaged 200? Yes, I've averaged 200 in the last two years. He says, well, you have the qualifications, young man. We're going to let you bowl. So (laughs) I'm all excited. I'm going to bowl. Carter's in the event. Weber's in the event. Patterson, Hoover, uh, Lillard, Ted Offen, Dave Davis, Jim St. John, Ritker and Zahn, Stefanich, Burton, Don Johnson, Salvino. They're all there. Godman, Godman, Hardwick. They're all there. The greatest, Eddie Bourdais, Harry Smith, they're all there. (laughs) So I go home. I can't sleep. I come in the next morning, and I bowl, and I shoot 12.01. And then in the night squad, I shoot 12.02. The 96-man field, I'm 47. Well, I come in the next morning, and I bowl 13.20, and I get to 27th, and I make the cut. Back then, they had an 18-game cut. And you bowled six more, and the top 16 went to match play at the end of 24 games. And lo and behold, 
I shot 1320 again and I qualified 11th. And now that morning I'm going to bowl against Dave Davis who made match play and Zond and Ritker and Jimmy certain and Jimmy Godman and Jim St. John and Ted Hoffman. And, uh, Lo and behold, I lose my first game and I win the next seven. And I'm four, I'm four pins out of first going into the night block. I win my my first four at night and I take the lead. I'm 11 and one. Left. Wow. I mean, I'm 18. The crowd's going nuts. It's 40 miles from where I, I went to high school. So all the high school kids are there. My, my wife's who I married later in 68 is there. Her mother, my brother-in-laws, all my friends from high school are there. They're watching this kid who's unconscious. It's obviously I'm on, I'm unconscious. I don't know what the hell's going on. All I know is I can win. So I make the fatal mistake of looking at the leaderboard. Every time I did that in my life, I lose three in a row. And lo and behold, I lose three of the next four and I finish second. But I beat Davis. Now, 69, I come out on tour and uh, I make the finals in Portland. And he's not doing well, and I'm bowling very well in this event. And I'm, I'm the tournament leader with two games to go in, in match play. And uh, I beat him in Portland. And then uh, I make the finals uh, in Rhode Island at Cranston, and I'm in the position round game against Burton and Hardwick to win the tournament. And I miss winning by 16 pins. There's no stepladder. And he makes the finals, and I beat him again. Now that fall, I bowl him in Newark. And I beat him again. And now he knows I got his number. And he doesn't like it. Now, we become friends. I become Rookie of the Year. We bowl the national championship at Garden City. Uh, he doesn't make uh, the, the top five. I finish third. And the next year at Garden City, he leads it, makes TV. I qualify second. I lose. Now it gets interesting. McGrath beats him to win the national championship. At this point, Davis has won the national championship twice, the tournament of champions of 1968. He loses to McGrath in a 70 TV show that was only shown in the East coast. In 71, he leads the national. He loses to lemon jello in Paramus. And in 76, he leads the national and he loses to Colwell at Leilani lanes in Seattle. He also wins the 75 Tournament of Champions. So, in essence, by 76, he's bowled for the title in seven or eight majors. At that point, at that point, there's only one person on the left side that can go around them, and that's Earl Anthony. <laughs> and, and by 74, when Earl wins his first bowler of the year, they're equal. But in 75, something happens. Davis hasn't won for five years. He has me do his drilling. He wins the tournament of champions. And he tells every single bowling writer at the interviews at the end of the show that I am the reason he won the tournament of champions. It was right after that that I bought my bus and started my business. And Dave Davis and Dick Weber, who had made TV that winter of 75, told everyone that asked them about me and their, their words were, he's the best ball driller in the world. And I wouldn't have made TV without him. So Dave Davis with the history we had going into 75 becomes one of my major supporters as a driller. 
naturally I beat him on TV in San Jose. So we had this relationship where now I'm his driller. I'm not his opponent, but that press conference where he told 65 bowling riders that I was the best ball driller in the world launched my business and then launched the comp program where he told Brunswick to give me balls. And then Columbia started giving me balls and sort of have a night in AMF. And all of a sudden I had a hundred comp balls a week to drill starting the winter tour of 76. So Dave Davis and Dick Weber, Johnny Earl were the men that told the bowling industry support this guy. So, when Dave died, all of these thoughts went through my mind that not only was he an opponent, not only did we have a, a fierce a record against each other in match play, but he's one of the men that, that really helped the industry understand how we needed player services. And a lot of people don't know that story. Now look where, what it's evolved to. Now you got reps, you know, you got, you know, you got staff members nationwide and, but it started with a dream and no pro shop going into the tournament of champions of 75. When I drilled his balls, I had a portable drill press that I brought into the locker room and no new equipment. And I didn't have a, a rolling pro shop. I had a drill press that I brought into the locker room, but starting a month later, uh, I had my boss and uh, launched the, the first rolling pro shop in history. Well, Dave and I talked about that. Uh, one day before our 50th anniversary of uh, uh, the, the only title I beat him for in my life, uh, which was February 6, 1971, I, vi I visited him February 5th, 2021. I went to his house in Lake Placid. And two, two weeks later, he had open heart surgery. And then I came back and saw him again, and um, it was very hard for me. Um, uh, I started to cry when I went into his living room. I saw him sleeping. Uh, it was pale as a ghost. Had been losing a lot of weight. And, you know, there was this strong man. I had Easter Sunday with him uh, in 2019. I went there with my ex-girlfriend, Laurel, and Dave and Judy Sutar, and we sat in his backyard, and he looked great. You know, he was about, oh, 76. He looked fantastic. Had good color. His weight was good. And then two years later, when I saw him again, oh, oh, my God, you know, what's happening to my friend? You know, it sunk in the last few weeks. You know, I've been thinking about him every day. And um, this is a very hard one for me, like it was with Mark and Tita and Roy and Smitty. Uh, unfortunately, you know, our friends are passing away that we love. Uh, but what you do you know, for your kindness and your, your generosity and Tegel allowing you to continue this show for 20 years. Thank God we have the memories, you know, and the ability, the desire to make sure these men are not forgotten. And I, I really appreciate you allowing me to talk about him. I could go forever, of course. <laughs> you know, I've got story after story. You know, I was an usher in his wedding. I want to tell you real good. He had six left-handers as ushers in his wedding. No, five. And Jim Mueller, who was the voice of the Cleveland Browns for CBS. So it's me, Petraglia, Bill Allen, and Jim Facenti. Jim Facenti's sister married Billy Hardwick. Yeah. Well, we were all lefties. And a left-handed young man, that I forget his name, from Atlanta that knew Dave well. So he had five lefties as ushers, and Jim Mueller, the voice of the Cleveland Browns, as his usher uh, at his wedding, uh, near Atlantic City in 1977. And I, uh, 
I have that picture of us all standing there with the bridesmaids. I, I had a full head of hair. I had an afro. I looked a little bit. I looked a little bit like Kyle Fruit from far away. I have wonderful memories with Dave. Uh, never mind the fact that I was fortunate enough to beat him, but it's a lot more than that. It was just, you know, idolizing him from 1965. And uh, I did speak to him uh, two days before he died, and he, he called me some names which I cannot repeat. Uh, he, he did not refer to me as Litchie. He referred to me as you so-and-so, and I don't want to repeat those words. And we would we would laugh. And I told him how much I loved him and how much uh, I know he did for the tour and for Brunswick and for the PBA. And I told him how much Dick Weber and Don Carter loved him and Johnny loved him and, uh, and how uh, we knew he was great. You know, he was the first great lefty. And, of course, Earl came along and pretty much stole the limelight, which was, very, I must say, was very tough. Didn't like it. Dave was a, an unbelievable competitor. And, you know, when Earl started to get praise, especially if there was 24 finalists and Earl was the only lefty and he made TV, uh, the rest of the lefties did not like hearing that. <laughs> Johnny didn't like it. I didn't like it. Dave didn't like it. Ferensky didn't like it. Glover didn't like it. But it was a fact. Earl started doing it in 72, 3, and 4, where, you know, he'd be in match play and the rest of us would be on the next plane. Uh, and we didn't like it. But that was a testament to Earl's greatness. Well, that, I'll tell you, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why I really wanted you on for the show, Pards. Uh, you went way back with him in a lot of different ways. Uh, I wanted to say one thing before we run out of time. And, you know, he was just an awesome player. But when you mentioned the national championship in uh, Seattle, when he beat Caldwell, or he played Caldwell for the title, uh, that's what really stuck out to me. Because uh, if you recall, Caldwell needed a strike in a tent, and he threw it in the gutter. And, and then there was a lot of commotion going on. And now Caldwell needed a spare to tie. And he did. He got mm -hmm. it. And now the crowd was in a frenzy, and Cobble had to get back up and bowl the roll off, and the crowd was crazy, noise, everything. Dave stood up, put his hands up, quieted the crowd. It showed how much class he had because Cobble never would have been able to throw the ball with all the people yelling and screaming. And then Paul won, and he just showed so much class that uh, – and I fell in love with him again after I met him in their middle 60s. Yeah, that too. was that was a CBS show. And um, uh, I don't remember if Weber did the color or it might have been Buckley or it might have been Steve Neff. But they would juggle a little bit. They didn't use Burton because Burton yeah. had the contract with ABC. So yeah. I do know it was a CBS show. It was early summer. And Mac Lowry, who... Uh, Ran Leilani would always resurface about three weeks before we got there, and those lanes were bleached white. They almost looked like synthetics. Yeah, that was that, those were the best lane surfaces I ever saw in my life. And Davis led that thing wire to wire. He got right off the lip, and every pair was so true. And those lanes were flat. And um, Colwell, you know, got to the title match. Colwell was not a good gutter player, but he that week he was swinging five out to the lip. And that was not his A game. Caldwell was fantastic from way in between between 15 and 25 uh, when he could get in there and saw on it. And, you know, the pocket was to the right of him. Uh, you know, his lay down. 
uh, he he was dominant. So nobody really picked Colwell, who was a great TV player, very underrated, 10-time PBA titleist with a Masters and a National win. But I'll never forget when Dave lost that um, that that title. He said to me after the show, he had won the TSC the year before at Milwaukee in 75, but he went five years where he led 10 times and lost on TV. I think that was the 11th time. Uh, it, it was constant. And people knew that, that if they got to him, they could beat him. Because if he started off with a seven, a six, and they rattled and doubled, caught a wall shot or tripped a four, and then, you know, he would go ring and seven, you know, solid six, you know, and he'd be uh, 56 in the third with a spare and a fourth, all, all four shots jammed. He would start to get upset. And people knew that about him because he would usually lead by three or 400. Like in 1980, he led Palatine by 770 pins and all be beat him. He went crazy at the end of that show. I was in the locker room. There was balls flying in the air for 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, yes. But people don't understand the, when you're that great a competitor that you can lead a field in 42 games by 770 pins, which is still the record. Yeah. And then go out on TV and, you know, you get a guy, he rips a rack, he trips a six, he goes solid, he gets a rattler, breaks down a three nine. He's got a four bagger and you ain't got a double. And now you're sitting in the seat and you go to commercial break and you're frying because you know you're down 30 pins and you've bowled just as good as your opponent, but you haven't got a strike yet. And that happened to Davis a lot. And he carried it with him. He did not like it. He did not. In fact, there was a time, and this is no exaggeration. We would call him Avis Davis because Avis was the second best rental car company to Hertz. Wow. <laughs> and somebody, some wise ass named him Avis Davis because he was second best so much in his career. And one day he heard it and he said something to me. Can you believe these F blah, 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 call me Avis Davis. You know, uh, they, they, I've led 21 times. They've never won, blah, 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 blah. And there was, you know, in the competitive life of a pro bowler, uh, and keep in mind back then, you know, if you had a $60,000 a year, you know, you, you, you felt like you were Howard Hughes. You know, you felt like you were a billionaire. <laughs> you weren't bowling for a lot of money in the 70s. Petraglia had the money lead at 85000 which he had in 71. So, you know, you go 10 years and it's 81, and Roth and Earl did, did start to break the 100000 barrier. But if you were fifth in the money list, maybe you had fifty, fifty-five, sixty thousand, which was very good. Was very good, but it wasn't retirement money. Bowlers have never had retirement money, so all those second-place finishes for Dave probably added up to a couple hundred thousand dollars if you start adding it up. Yeah, you know, twenty-seven for first, fourteen for second, twenty-seven for first, fourteen for second. So he bowls two. Two tournaments that he leads, he loses twenty six thousand in two games. It was, and, yeah, it was unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. yeah go ahead, that up. Go, go add up twelve seconds <laughs> versus twelve firsts, <laughs> and add up the dollar difference. Now you're talking retirement money. Boy, that's for sure. Lindsay, listen, we're out of time. Let me let me have you say a, a parting shot uh, with Dave in mind. All right. Well. God's got himself a, 
quite an all-star team up there uh, in the last two years, which we were just talking about with Harry Smith, Roy Buckley, Tina, Mark Roth, and Dave. And of course, Dave is with Weber now who we loved and Carter and the Kokomo kid and Earl and uh, Jimmy Godman. And we love them. And I'm glad we always talk about them because they're the men that built bowling. They're the men that, you know, built your reputation in mine because we were out there while they were the stars and we have a chance to reminisce about them. And I want to thank you for allowing me to, uh, to talk about my friends with you. I, I appreciate it very much. Wow. I appreciate you being on Powers and pass along all the information you always do. And I want to thank our sponsors, Brad Edelman and Storm Bowling and my good friend from Michigan, Dave Kowalski, who was just recently inducted into the Coaches Hall of Fame up there. And we'll be back again next week with another great uh, guest. And Litchie, we love you. You take care of yourself. So for Phantom Radio, this is the Phantom. God bless Dave Davis. Thank you so much, Phantom. When you're down and troubled and you need some loving care and nothing well nothing is going right close your eyes and think of me and soon i